Michael first heard the rumors back in 2008. Somewhere on the outskirts of the Ukrainian city of Kharkov, there was a film shoot, a big one, on which something very strange was happening. I saw some commotion around it on Russian film blogs. Fired BAs and employees writing about how totalitarian and psychologically oppressive the, the set was. Um, coming back with basically PTSD. But then there was the other half of the crew, the ones who stayed. People who got so involved with the film's production that they moved their families there and never left. The film, a period piece about a mid-20th century Soviet scientist, was known simply as Dow. Its director, Ilya Zhranovsky, had only one previous title to his credit. But now, supplied with a seemingly endless amount of money from various investors, and four years into the production with no end in sight, Zhranovsky had supposedly gone mad with power, insisting that his cast and crew live full-time on an increasingly large and elaborate set, cut off from the outside world. An acquaintance of mine compared it to something out of Heart of Darkness, um, you know, half-joking that uh, he expected uh, heads uh, on spikes around the encampment. Obviously, I was immediately interested. Michael was dead set on finding out just what exactly was going on. So he pitched his investigation as an article to GQ, booked a flight to Harkov, and after a little bit of journalistic maneuvering, managed to score three days on set with Herzhanovsky himself. I remember uh, pulling up to the set and thinking it wasn't all that imposing or huge, uh, looking at it from the outside because all you see is uh, you know, cardboard and two by fours. That's when Dronofsky appeared. Wearing strangely outdated clothing and spectacles, the director looked sort of like a young Albert Einstein. He would be giving Michael a personal tour of the set. But first, Michael would have to be processed. Because you were not supposed to admit that the film shoot was in fact a film shoot. Instead, everyone was operating under the notion that it's the 50s. That day, it was um, 1952. So I needed to be made into a 1952 version of myself. They took away my clothes, they uh, gave me a new haircut with like temples shaved off, and gave me a, an incredibly itchy period suit, including the underwear. Uh, the one thing I was allowed to keep was, um, was my watch. Uh, I had a vintage watch from 1959, and after a pretty intense discussion, they decided it was okay to uh, to let me keep this uh, watch from the future. Then Dronofsky instructed Michael to give his freshly minted Soviet passport to a man guarding an otherwise nondescript hallway. So you go through this very narrow, uh, you know, birth canal of a, of a passageway and then a small door opens and you just kind of tumble out onto the set itself. There, right in front of Michael, is a small Soviet city. And by city, I don't mean a movie set that looks like a city. I mean a city, straight out of 1952. There's a main square with monuments, apartments, a stadium. A working cafeteria, a working barber shop. And then, of course, there were the citizens. It was 1 a.m., and even at 1 a.m., it was huge and it was populated. There were janitors in Soviet dress sweeping the streets. There were militiamen in Soviet uniforms patrolling the perimeter, just sort of, you know, imbuing it with some sort of crazy authenticity. 
And you might ask, when was he directing? And the answer is he wasn't. That whole month, the cameras weren't rolling. In other words, most of these actors weren't actually actors at all. Or if they were, they weren't acting anymore. The janitors, the barbers, those were their real jobs now. They worked and even lived on the set, whether Zhirnovsky was shooting or not. As if to prove it, he would take Michael into structures which Michael thought were just facades, but which proved to be fully functional apartment buildings, complete with 1950s refrigerators, stocked with 1950s food, stamped with 1950s expiration dates. The detailing was uh, truly insane. He kept insisting on uh, flushing uh, the toilets in each building to show me, first of all, that they were flushable, but also to point out that they made custom with pipes for the toilets because the modern pipes made the wrong sound. They get hit the wrong note as the water descended into the bowl. Zhanovsky himself, uh, at that point, seemed just sort of beside himself with glee, uh, showing me this uh, enormous toy he uh, had built and uh, was now living in. But Michael quickly realized that what got Zhanovsky really excited wasn't the authenticity of the set, but what the set was doing to the people living there. There was no traditional movie equipment inside. Instead, there were hidden cameras everywhere. You could film through holes in walls, you could film through holes in ceilings. There were hidden microphones and lighting fixtures like there would actually be in the Stalin era Russia. Their function was to create a, a working totalitarian uh, surveillance society. Those, uh, those policemen on the set were uh, real prison guards and one of their functions was to listen in on conversations and find actors sizable fines that they actually took out of salaries for using modern conveniences or for uttering uh, modern words. As befits uh, Stalin's Russia, everyone, including the cafeteria workers and uh, the barbershop workers, moonlighted as a, as a snitch. So, you know, if, 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 you, if you used mo modern words, within minutes the guards would arrive and fine you for this. This happened to me several times. And uh, then you looked around the room trying to figure out who the snitch was. And uh, the answer is, as, as usual, uh, everyone. The goal was clearly to create an absurd world with absurd rules, but then actually force people to follow these rules and see how fast these rules become normal. And this is something I've experienced myself. I am a Soviet child, and it's amazing how easily we accept these totalitarian society. Or, like in any totalitarian system, not just accept it, but come to embrace it. One of the seemingly endless female associate producers that Kshanovsky had on set started out much like myself. She came on the set to interview Kshanovsky and was so enthralled by the production that she never left. And I believe she left her husband. So Michael knew that just because he was a journalist who could return to the comfort of his hotel room in Kharkov each night, that didn't make him immune to the pull of the set and the pressure to just kind of obey. Still, he was surprised at how hard it was to resist because I wasn't on the set alone. I was there with uh, Sergei Maximishin, um, a famous uh, Russian photographer. And he was exactly the kind of person that Kranovsky could not abide. He just basically thought the whole thing was a joke and kept uh, kind of cracking wise about it. He you know, kept using 
forbidden words like shoot and scene and lighting and makeup. And uh, what's interesting is that I realized that his infractions made me cringe. I, um, every time uh, he would say something like, you know, shoot or lighting, I, I would be like, ah, God, no, shh, you know, they're, they're, they're going to find you. Michael knew, of course, that this is exactly what Zhirinovsky wanted, for Michael to almost instinctively care about these obviously arbitrary rules, over and above any journalistic solidarity with his photographer. But it turns out that this conditioning was just one small part of Michael's larger indoctrination. I um, got really good at putting on my period suit with the suspenders and the, uh, and the cufflinks and all that. And I had sweated so much into the suit, it was pretty much mine. Uh, yeah, I, I had this sort of leisurely stroll and set, already knowing where everything was. And uh, I, I just started talking to this um, very beautiful girl who uh, worked at the cafeteria. Her name was Olia, and uh, uh, at least her character's name was... Oh, yeah. But she was clearly one of Zhirinovsky's you know, favorites. When I asked her how long she was on set, she said uh, she worked at the cafeteria since 1949, uh, so for three years. In reality, she had been on the set for uh, four months, and she invited uh, me and the photographer over for dinner in her apartment. Her apartment was, of course, uh, part of the set. And the dinner was probably one of the most surreal experiences I've uh, I've had. Everyone was trying to keep a, a period uh, appropriate conversation. Ole was the one who held her facade the best. Uh, everyone else, including Kuchanovsky, uh, kept slipping into uh, anachronistic speech and there was just no breaking her character. I sort of pulled her aside and uh, uh, she pulled out her cigarette and had a smoke. The cigarette I checked was, of course, a period-appropriate Soviet cigarette. And um, I asked her if she wants to be an actress, if, you know, uh, when she grows up, uh, and uh, she would have none of it. Uh, uh, said, no, why? I want to be a scientist. And she was just sort of perfect. And at some point she pulled me aside and showed me her room, a little bedroom with a half-dead cactus and a nightgown thrown over the bed. It just felt like a pet showing off her cage. There was this atonal um, cello music being piped in everywhere the whole night through, through these uh, uh, pole-mounted uh, speakers. I noticed that uh, it was clearly audible in the room and asked her if it annoys her and she said, no, I love it. Sometimes I uh, sleep with the window open. It was a strange, disturbing and somewhat erotic uh, moment. She asked me to uh, come back and see her tomorrow alone. And when a pretty girl asks you to come see her alone, you consider it for a second. But I realized that as irresistible as I may think I am, she was clearly acting on Hrzanovsky's orders to see if I can be quite literally seduced into staying on set. The idea of a camera in the ceiling was probably, you know, the, the best cold shower you could, uh, you could imagine. That night I was incredibly exhausted. Uh, the set really did suck the life out of you. And I uh, got out with some 
measure of relief. And I was grateful to be out, but also really wanted to uh, to go back in. Why would you want to go back? Because it was, uh, in its own strange way, beautiful, because it was uh, a mystery, because it was a hell of a story. And so the next morning, Michael donned his itchy trousers, walked down the narrow passageway, and entered the main square one last time. That's when Hranovsky found me and stopped me because it turns out that his conflict with uh, Sergei, the photographer, had reached full boil. Sergei was trying to shoot Olya, the cafeteria worker, taking a bath. And that alone was fine with Hranovsky. But then uh, the photographer asked her to um, put her hair uh, up in a kind of a turban using a towel. And that really uh, threw Hranovsky um, into a rage. Olya does not bathe in a turban because, uh, of course, he would know how she bathes. Uh, he would know how everyone bathes on the set. And I remember Hranovsky uh, just yelling. Your photographer is asking people to pose. He's not observing life. He's staging it. And uh, I can't have that. My people are not puppets. Um, the last uh, sentence was especially ironic because, of course, they were. But his puppets, not uh, not Sergei's. And Hranovsky um, um, took kind of a dramatic breath and you know, switched to this uh, half-whisper and said, we're ending our collaboration. You must leave. You must leave. That's when I think my acculturation to the Soviet society reached its peak because I realized what I had to do. I had to disown my own photographer. That's, of course, something that generations upon generations of uh, Soviet people were forced to do, to betray those next to them in order to save their own hides. And um, that's what I did. I, uh, I said, I understand, I, I agree completely. I've only just met uh, this guy, the GQ sent to photograph the story. He's not a friend of mine. Um, if you feel that he's violating the rules... Uh, and even as I was hearing myself uh, say these words, there's no need for the photographer. I was aware of how fully I had succumbed to this fascist reality. And then I look at Hranovsky and, uh, and I see that he has a smile on his face because he understands that this also was a bit of a performance because I knew it would look great in the article to say that I've been conditioned. So I've helped him to create this self-portrait of a tyrannical genius and he finally managed to completely control me. And um, I'm not sure if I'm proud of this story. I love it. It's the best magazine story I've ever written. But I'm not sure I'm, um, I'm proud of it. And as for Zhranovsky and his toy? At some point I asked Zhranovsky what would happen to the set after he was done with it. And uh, he grew very and said, I don't know. He had achieved the ultimate filmmaker's dream. He had become a creator and sole ruler of an entire tiny world. And once you experience that, it's very hard to let go. All told, Tronofsky would go on to shoot over 700 hours of film. When he was finally forced to wrap principal photography, 
Olya and all the other cafeteria workers, barbers, and guards shuttered their apartments, handed back their clothes, and returned to the real world. But not before Zernowski had them burn the set to the ground. That was three years ago. No one knows when the film will be released. It's a film made from 700 hours of raw footage. It's an art project of unheard proportions. Dao, directed by Ilya Khrazhanovsky, set out to be a biopic of the Soviet physicist Lev Landau and a denunciation of Soviet totalitarianism. The project, which is being rolled out this year, saw cameras follow 300 everyday Russians around a set built to replicate life in a Soviet city. In 2009, over 400 people left their everyday lives to go back in time to the Soviet Union. For over two years, they lived and worked at the Secret Research Institute. Even before Dao was premiered in Paris this week, reports of the size and the scale and the ambition of the project had amazed and unsettled. Joining us on the line from London is Albina Kovalyova, who worked on the project at various stages. Albina, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. First of all, it's it's been called it's been called a film. It's been called an art project. As someone who worked on Dao, can you describe exactly what it is? Sure. I mean, I think it might be helpful to differentiate the different stages of it because initially it was an, a film project, or so it was understood to be. There was a script, although that script seemed to be quite closely guarded and was hidden. It was written by uh, the famous Russian author Sorokin, Vladimir Sorokin. Um, But, you know, initially when I started in 2006 as a casting assistant, it was very much like, we're going to make this film, we're going to need to cast some, you know, huge amount of ordinary people in order to make it look authentic. But then, having left in 2007, mm. what I heard in the 10 years that I wasn't working the project, that it is that it morphed into something really beyond uh, a film. It was, uh, they created this set in East Ukraine, in Kharkiv, where people lived, um, ordinary people lived kind of day-to-day lives, scientists, uh, real scientists were there doing work in labs or research or conferences. And it became more of a kind of observation of life in a, set in a very unusual setting in a kind of semi-recreation of the Soviet Union, but also with a very kind of artistic taste take on it. It wasn't a complete replica of the Soviet Union. And although they did go through the times, they, they would change certain uh, power dynamics and stylistic things, you know, as you went from 1938 to 1968, which is when it ended. And all of this over the course of uh, two years. So it was, uh, this institute was destroyed in 2011. But then afterwards, you see, since uh, 2012 and post-production, what you kind of learn when you when you work on it and not, especially now when you encounter this project is that to think of it as a film experience is not helpful at all because even the films that you watch are kind of anti-filmic they're drawn out and boring and they don't necessarily have a plot line uh in in the traditional sense but what i think is more helpful is to see this as a as a kind of recreated world and that is everything from the set that they created in kharkov to the post-production 
um, studio to, I suppose, um, even the launch in Paris. You, you mentioned that you worked as a as a casting assistant. Can you tell us what it was like to to be to be looking for people to to participate uh, in in the project? What sorts of people were were you looking for, and did they have a clear sense of what they were signing on to? It was very vague that my assignment was just to go and find people, you know, that would look authentic. Uh, in the setting of the Soviet Union. So I went through all of Moscow's museums, you know, just taking photographs of, you know, the people who were were working there, the staff. I went to loads of university faculties. I went to the circus. I think I even went to an orphanage at some point. And what I was doing is I was Mm. just taking photographs of people and trying to persuade them to let me do that because Moscow is quite a hostile place in that sense, you know, especially this is like the early 2000s, people were still really suspicious of the media having, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff going on in the 90s. And uh, even just persuading them to take a photograph and give me their number was hard enough Hmm. because they're like, what film? I don't want to be in the film. What are you doing? Who are you? It was all very suspicious to them. But so I just, you know, I worked on this huge database of uh, non-acting people, just headshot and then the profile of that person and their name and title and uh, their phone number. And that was it. And it was, but it was just, you know, kind of never ending. I had to cast so many different institutions and it wasn't clear, you know, how they were going to be cast or what was going to happen to them. I mean, it did seem bizarre. It would make you wonder what sort of, uh, what sort of budget a project like this had. This is, I suppose, the focus of a lot of um, speculation, you know, where is the money coming from? There is a an official answer, which is apart from the film funds, the various European film funds that have given uh, money towards the project, there is um, an official backer uh, who is a Russian oligarch, Sergei Adonyev. So I think it's, you know, it's it's... There is an official answer for this. The question is, why would he back this um, very unusual and almost never-ending project? In a piece that you wrote for The Telegraph, you said that having been in proximity to this project, you'd been left with a bad feeling. You had been left uh, troubled. Can you explain why that is? Well, I mean, I would go further. I mean, I would say that I was really affected by this in a deep way, Um I, since I sort of started working on it again in 2016, I spoke to, um, you know, 50, over 50, closer to 60 of the participants. And I did interviews with them from, you know, one to two hours with each of them. And sometimes I do multiple interviews with, um, with some individual. And I saw, I don't know how many hours of the footage, but, you know, probably close to 100 hours, maybe not so much, but anyway, a lot. And I saw the different kind of things that were captured. And I did feel like some of it had really crossed the line of what is permissible. Um, It is complicated because you see, you you are told that, well, people who were there were aware of um, that the rules were flexible and that sort of unpleasant things could happen to them, including uh, violence and interrogation and sort of psychological pressure. So they agreed to it. But um, even if that is the case, I think there's still a way that people were um, influenced in that environment that would make them act in ways that they probably would never have um, acted in normal life. And although 
the project sort of embraces that and says, well, that is the place where they can act in these sort of uh, ways. It's liberating in that sense. I think that in some cases it wasn't liberating, but the opposite. I'm not saying that in some cases it wasn't liberating. I think for some people it was a kind of freedom that they could act in in ways there that they, they'd feel um, too restricted to in, in life. But I think in some cases uh, the dark side of people came out or they would become victims of someone else's dark side. And the other side of this whole thing is that, okay, if you've got adults who are consenting to being in this situation, whether, you know, they're subject to great pleasure or abuse or whatever it is, um, you've got the other side of those beings, sentient beings that don't have a choice. And those are animals and those are children and those are people who might have mental um, illnesses or instabilities. And I think that given that they, there were these vulnerable groups involved, I think that that is really unfair. Um, and that raises a lot of moral questions to me as a, as a journalist, but also as a human being. There's one scene that, uh, that I described in the article, which is um, the, they have babies in, uh, with Down syndrome who they placed in cages and then they took them out and performed kind of pseudo experiences, uh, experiments on them. The Dow team told me that these babies were treated well and that they had their cares with them. And um, that really it was my sensitivity as a, as a young mother that I w I'm reacting like this to this scene. But of course, these babies were orphans. Uh, and I felt that, you know, who can really speak for orphans in East Ukraine? And even if the orphanage gave a blessing to, to use them in such a way, I felt like it was, uh, I mean, something in there is wrong in my uh, intuitive understanding of things. And so then, then I was really troubled by this and, and, and the way that people kind of um, explained it away and said that it was actually okay. And it was a kind of normalizing of what I thought was really a terrible thing to do. So at this point, um, you know, I had to leave the project because it was just emotionally really difficult to be in this environment and to be sort of convinced that I was wrong about something that I felt really intuitively that I was right about, if that makes sense to you. The project was launched in, in, in Paris. Uh, it's been written about in a slew of Western news organizations. What kind of impact have you seen it have in Russia? Are viewers here likely to appreciate it or see it as a denunciation of Soviet-era rule? Mm, I think, really, it's difficult to, to answer this question. I think there's been a lot of mixed reviews. If we're going to just focus on the Russian um, reaction, then it's interesting uh, as a contrast to the Western uh, reviews, which a lot of which have been pretty critical. I haven't really seen many critical official Russian reviews. They really talk about the kind of artistic... Uh, integrity of this project and how unusual it is to recreate this and the kind of depths of detail. And of course, this is a Russian project originally, but um, yet it seems it will never be shown in Russia because there's so many things in it that would make it, well, impossible to, to uh, be shown in a country with ever-increasing um, censorship laws. Uh, I mean, for once, there is a film about a gay love story, which is very graphic. That that would never be shown in Russia, of course. What does it say to you that um, 
the the Soviet Union is thought of as being a time of extreme censorship, and now that this critique of the of of that era is being is being produced, now it it sounds as if you're saying that it's unlikely that it would be shown in in contemporary Russia. What does that say to you about the the, the media landscape, the cultural landscape here in Russia at the moment? Well, I don't think that the reason that it won't be allowed in Russia has to do with the fact that it's a critique of the Soviet Union. I think the reason it wouldn't be shown in Russia is because it has all of these elements that would probably be deemed illegal in Russia. Um, but I think also to look at it as a critique of the Soviet Union uh, is to simplify it a bit, because it certainly does look deeply into what, how certain elements of the Soviet Union worked, like power, for example, because you've got the kind of KGB operators there and how they used, what kind of tactics they used and how people would respond to that and how people might betray their friends. And, um, and of course, visually, it was very much like being in the Soviet Union. But I think it's not really necessarily about that. I think it's about recreating a world. It could be the Soviet Union. It could be another world. It doesn't, I don't think it's, um, it, it matters so much, but I think what what it becomes is sort of a study of power. How do you put in put a group of people together and control them? And what if you loosen the control here? And what if you apply pressure here? What happens? What happens if you change the power structure and make it more free? And then what happens if you bring in a new group of people and uh, make a kind of, I suppose, brutal ending? You know, so I think it's really playing with with different uh, groups of um, influence, and it's really a kind of social experiment, I would say, rather than a recreation of the Soviet Union. I think really that's where you know a lot of people make um, the mistake of thinking it really is about the Soviet Union. This project, I don't think it is. I think by just influencing people in this way and, and creating this Soviet atmosphere, but then applying things that really had nothing to do with the Soviet Union and, and, and using modern people as well, you just get something completely different. I'll tell you one thing that I found in this project, which is very much linked to present day Russia. And that is this idea that you see Nothing really is true, so you can have any sort of version of truth. And that is, of course, the Russian tactic for fake news and, you know, post-truth world. You know, what is uh, what is the truth anyway? Is it not a matter of perspective? So maybe this event happened like this, or maybe this event happened like this. Albina, thanks very much. Thanks for taking the time to, to speak with us. All right, take care. Bye. Incoming transmission. Listen, you son of a bitch. What the fuck's your problem? You want to sit here and say that I'm a goddamn fucking Russian? You get in my face with that, I'll beat your goddamn ass, you son of a bitch. You piece of shit. You fucking goddamn fucker. Listen, fuckhead. You have fucking crossed the line. Get that through your goddamn fucking head. Stop pushing your shit. You're the people that have fucked this country over. Yeah, Russian hacking underworld sounds like some upcoming James Bond caper. Our next story is about an actual movie about the Nobel Prize winning Soviet physicist Lev Landau. The film is called Dow, and there isn't a film yet about the making of Dow, but there ought to be. 
Dow was filmed over five years in a specially built two-scale replica of a 1950s Soviet scientific institute. The director even flew in real-life physicists to Ukraine for a week to play scientists in the movie. Among them was Alexander Vilenkin, the father of the world's friend and writer Alina Simone. In July of 2011, my dad called to tell me he was returning to Kharkov, Ukraine, the city my family left as political refugees almost 40 years ago. And he was leaving in two days. That wasn't even the weird part. He was going back in time to a country that no longer exists to play a role in what might just be the grandest experiment in film history. As my dad explains. The scale of this whole project is totally mind-boggling. Like, they closed the main street of Kharkov for two days. Or they closed the airport and they changed the signs from Ukrainian to Russian. They were shooting a scene where hungry people ate some rotten cabbage, so they brought 70 ton of cabbage and they sprayed it with cement to make it look rotten. His friend and fellow physicist Igor Klebanov also grew up in Kharkov. And like my dad, this was his first time back. The set of Dow turned out to be less than a mile from his old home. It was kind of touching. I mean, just the fact that I knew the area and I could see our neighborhood from the, the windows of the studio. In some strange sense, I was the local there, and they weren't, because almost all the people at the studio were from Moscow or St. Petersburg. So there was this peculiar element of that. Then there was the going back in time element. You couldn't get into the territory where they were filming with any object made after 1956, because 1956 was the year they were filming, so everything had to go. So I was given underwear, I was given a briefcase. Except for the three lead roles, everyone who participated in the filming of Dow played their own doppelganger. Physicists played physicists, communist party bosses played communist party bosses, and former KGB agents played, you guessed it. This was like uh, nothing else that I saw before. Inside there was like a yard, and some KGB person would walk around the perimeter, and the music... There was always music, and it was kind of threatening music, which kind of suggested some approaching catastrophe. Obviously, all that was kind of intended to press on your psyche. It probably presses on your psyche even more if you'd once been blacklisted by the KGB as my dad had and spent years as a persona non grata in his own hometown. Igor, on the other hand, left Kharkov as a teenager. For him, this was a walk on the dark side of communism he never knew. And then when I went in, they took me to Pierre Deal, basically the KGB, and they had me write out these long statements in Russian using ink pen. And that was quite an experience, having this guy who is like the KGB guy basically stare at you and dictate to you, and then you're supposed to repeat it and write it all out. Yeah, I had uh, to do that too, and I remember that, you know, <laughs> I, the, the meaning was that I will not really tell any secrets under no circumstances. That, uh, that's right, that's right. Maybe they'll be after us soon. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing, I didn't perceive it as a particularly Soviet I mean, it was an allegory of Soviet life, but my immediate impression was that the Soviet life was far more bleak than what they created at this institute. 
Я по свету немало хаживал, Жил землянки в окопах в тайге. Sadly, it doesn't look like I'll ever get the chance to see my dad navigating this weird parallel universe. Dow has been scheduled to premiere at Cannes for the past three years in a row, but remains stuck in post-production. At least my dad brought home some souvenirs. I understand that was the custom when uh, a scientist visited the institute. When he left, he was given some presents, and uh, I left most of them, but I took a roll of toilet paper, which was a very kind of um, nostalgic thing, which was a deficit in when I lived in Kharkov, very hard to get, but uh, I got that. It still decorates my house. Now you know what you get when your dad goes back in time, back to the USSR. A roll of toilet paper. There's got to be some symbolism there. For the world... This is Alina Simone.